Coming up on this week's show, Atari celebrates its 50th birthday in style. Some amazing new metal slug ports are coming. And we look back on 35 years of the Amiga 500 with Anton Nicola Caulfield. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every week with our wonderful friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books you should absolutely check out, the unofficial SNES Pixel Book, boasting lavish design, hundreds of screen grabs and cutouts, and multi-screen sprawling bosses and levels. If you love the Super Nintendo graphics, you've got to check out this book and the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And with our lovely friends at PCBWay. Now, if you're working on an electronics project at the moment, they offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards. And they offer services like 3D printing and injection molding, and they're big supporters of the retro community. So get an instant quote for your project right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 334, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And nice to see you here for another packed episode reminiscing about the classic age of video games and technologies and keeping you up to date on all the big stories that have been going on over the last seven days and of course bringing you a very special guest in the second half of the show. I love doing this podcast as well. Little escapism before the weekend, you know, talking about systems like the Mega Drive, the Sinclair Spectrum, the Atari Jaguar. What else, Joe? Loads of other stuff we talk about. Oh, God. We talk, what, consoles or just what we talk about? Yeah. Consoles. Oh, we'll go. Anything. We talk about anything, anything and anything. If it's retro, if it's tech from about 20 plus years ago, we'll talk about it on here, you know. And sometimes, like, people say to me, like, you have a news section? Like, you know, you talk about the news for, like, 15, 20 minutes? And I'm like, yeah, you know, there's always stuff coming out. There's always new games coming out on these systems, new bits of tech coming out, stuff like that. You know, it's absolutely crazy. And obviously... We do like to get nostalgic and, you know, you you do like to talk about the history of it all and stuff like that. But um, Ravi, you've you've been up to something interesting today, talking of history and preservation, haven't you? (laughs) How's your back, Ravi, after carrying this across London? So last time um, I talked about when I picked up something and I took a CRT on the bus. Oh, Um, yeah. Yeah, this this time I, I, I took three CRTs through London and uh, that was pretty interesting because, you know, the tubes, it's pretty pretty hot on the tubes anyway but carrying free crts is a challenge <laughs> i was uh, <laughs> you know i had to put them at the bottom of the stairs at some stations and then like go up the stairs and then run down and get it before i got arrested <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so if you're in london this week and you saw some guy carrying three crt monitors on the underground I tell you i got some looks from rabbit. the public there was like some knowing <laughs> looks like someone would sit there like yeah that's my youth you know it was, <laughs> it was quite good i felt kind of proud like i might just walk around with a crt now to get respect just from now rather than a boombox <laughs> like in the 80s on the shoulder it's just ravi carrying crts around it's the new boombox that's what yeah it is. yeah but i managed to pick up a uh, macintosh 512k which is a classic mac and uh i'm going to try and get into the world of classic mac this is going to be very interesting see what i can do and uh just play around and see if it all works is it because we've been doing these episodes recently about old school max oh, now? yeah seriously your interest I, of it. <laughs> I, I am really getting into the mac yeah don't kill me amiga users but also i'm sure there's some kind of crossover as well because you know 
they all use the same processors and stuff. So uh, I can see, I want to see what emulators I can run on the Mac and stuff. Well, Ravi, I know you are, you know, traditionally an Amiga fan. Actually, you're going to be quite interested in this week's guests because, um, I mean, there, there are a couple of returning guests on the show that we love to get on just for like a kind of an annual update, really, because they do so much stuff. And um, one of those guests would be Ant and Nicola Caulfield. Now, of course, they're famous for the Bedrooms to Billions documentaries that came out a couple of years ago, one of which was, I mean, I remember watching it at your house, I think, when it came out, the... Um, the Amiga years yeah. that they did. That, 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 That's like a two and a half hour one, wasn't it? They're kind of world-renowned for creating amazing documentaries. You know, I've I've talked to many people that are into, like, history and nostalgia and retro games, and they've kind of said to me, you know, bedrooms to billions, have you seen this? Have you seen this? And uh, it seems to be the kind of standard of really good documentaries. So I'm excited about this. This one's a bit different, isn't it? It's It's, it's a series that they're starting. Yes, I mean, they've, um, last time we had them on was last summer, and that's when they were working on the Rubikeed Wonder. That was the 40th celebrations of the ZX Spectrum, which they're hoping is going to be out this year, and they've actually spoken to some incredible people for that. They've even got Clive Sinclair's kids involved in it, wow. which, um, yeah, you'll hear all about that in the interview. We'll do a bit of a catch-up on that. They had the, yeah, the PlayStation Revolution movie as well that was a real celebration for the PlayStation. But actually now they're doing a... Um, a little series that actually starts with, these are kind of, because obviously the film's so much, you know, making these massive blockbuster documentaries. And they're starting a series called The Gaming Chronicles, where they're going to be doing, you know, these are shorter form documentaries yeah. focusing on a particular area. And something I didn't realise is the Amiga 500 actually celebrates its 35th birthday this year. All these anniversaries. You know, we're going to be talking about Atari's 50th soon, 40 years of the Spectrum, 35 years of the Amiga 500. So they've actually done a... And it's actually on Kickstarter now. And if you want to get involved in this, I believe Kickstarter is the only way that you can get involved and watch this. So if you're listening to this on Friday when it comes out, you've only got until Sunday morning. I'll tell you. So check out the link. It's pretty awesome. Like just in the name, Bedrooms to Billions, they're they're kind of playing a tribute to like the British idea of, you know, creating a game at home and uh, doing that with with systems like the Spectrum and, and the Amiga. And it's quite good to have these guys like highlighting the story of kind of European and British computing, whereas, uh, you know, other documentaries highlight a lot of the American-focused stuff. There's a lot of the Japanese stuff, and they're not missing that out by doing the PlayStation stuff. But I think it's nice to have a tribute to these machines that um, in other countries might not have been massively successful, but to kind of get the background of them and uh, have it told from the uh, British perspective, I think that's really cool. Well, they were saying that because obviously the, the Amiga years, it, a lot of it was about the demo scene and game development, you know, which is a big area that they focus on. But in terms of hardware, they really only covered the Amiga 1000, the original Amiga in depth. But then a lot of people got in touch and said, well, you know, we've never used an Amiga 1000. We all had Amiga 500s yeah. back in the day. That no, was very so American, new, wasn't it, as well? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it wasn't a big success over here. You know, all the kids had 500s here. So this um, first episode of The Gaming Chronicles is a full episode dedicated to the Amiga 500. And they've spoken to guys like, you know, Jeff Porter, who was like the head head of the project on the Amiga 500. Loads of guys from Commodore, loads of developers as well. So I had a chat to them 
And really, we just kind of nerded out about, you know, our memories of the Amiga 500, what made it so special, talking about the packs that it had, the, the wider effect it had on the industry. We talk a bit about, you know, whether piracy kind of helped it out or not, you know, the, the elephant in the room whenever you talk about Amiga stuff. So it's a really good chat. And if you do want to check out this documentary, like I said, you've got to be quick. There's only like, what, 48 hours left to get involved on Kickstarter. I will put the link in the show notes. And we're going to be celebrating 35 years of the Amiga 500 with Ant and Nicola Caulfield on the show in just a bit. Now, while we're talking about anniversaries, I mean, we did kind of touch on Atari celebrating a big one, 50 years of Atari. And we mentioned that kind of mini collection of games a couple of weeks ago in the show. But actually, they've had a big announcement in the last week that they're going to be going all out with their 50th celebrations and uh, repackaging some games that haven't actually made it onto modern platforms before. Yeah, but before that, uh, let's just talk about Atari uh, for a moment and them hitting the 50th because... Yeah. Like they are the pretty much the foundation of video games. Like before people used to say let's play Nintendo, they used to say let's play Atari. And um, Have you played Atari today? Yeah, have you played Atari today? And coming from like the arcade world and then bringing games into the home was a a huge fantastic move and uh you know, Atari are back in some kind of form, but um they they were they're, they're kind of a former great, you know. And uh, they're really pioneering. Um, What are your kind of memories of the impact of Atari? For me, Atari's kind of like, like you say, they've they've been around for 50 years, but they kind of last like 10, 20 years. I don't want to bash them (laughs) because we do bash Atari. They've been a bit of a, a, I don't want to say a joke, a bit of a gimmick. Like I've always known of Atari, you know, Atari 2600 and 5200 and, you know, the foundations they laid, you know, but also you got to remember, like, I also remember, obviously I wasn't around, but obviously I'm more than aware of that. They kind of like, they also kind of almost destroyed the games industry yeah, as well. It, they made it. control wasn't yeah. the biggest thing. They, yeah. they made it and destroyed it. And then, you know, they have this amazing legacy and they do have some really amazing games out there and they've got so many consoles and you know, so many consoles that we love, like me and Dan, we both love the Jaguar, even though it's like, you know, it's regarded as one of the worst consoles out there. We absolutely adore it. But they haven't recently been on massively top form with weird casinos and, you know, the VCS or whatever it's called and all that kind of stuff, you know. Cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies and, yeah. and stuff like that. But this seems like they're back top, you know, back on top form. Like, they're like, okay, it's 50 years of Atari. We need to do something, like, good. We need to do something special. So I'm glad they're like kind of paying attention to that and actually trying to make these re-releases really good. And they're not just, you know, doing like a flashback console, you know, that we've seen a million times over the last 20 years. Yeah, And and like they're the different Atari, aren't they? The new ones. Like we've had so many guests on that have talked about Atari and like the original one and a lot of stuff like the um, programs that they had, the gaming competitions mm. and stuff that like drive innovation and stuff. And if you think about it, these guys... I, I remember seeing a documentary where they bought out the first Pong machine and uh, mm. they were using like fake serial numbers on the back. They had a, a bread tin uh, baking tray to collect the coins and stuff. It was like... Yeah, very homebrew. Yeah, very yeah. homebrew and stuff. But they <laughs> but they got it out there. That was the main thing. That they was got the it out thing, in yeah. the public's eye, yeah. Well, you know, whenever anyone asks me this, and if we do interviews for like, you know, 
magazine articles or other podcasts, that question always comes up, doesn't it? Who was your favourite ever interviewee on the podcast? And to me, I mean, I, I love everyone that we've had on, but Nolan Bushnell, when we had him on yes. for episode 100, always stands out as a highlight. And I thought, actually, it might be interesting just to listen to a couple of minutes. And um, if people didn't hear that episode that we did all the way back in episode 100, I'll link it up in the show notes as well. You know, it might be quite timely to revisit that with Atari celebrating its 50th birthday. But I thought it was this was one of my favourite moments in the interview when he explained kind of the origins of Atari and how the business plan completely changed. My idea for Atari was that we were going to be a research organization and that we would provide designs to the big guys that already that had factories and, and get a royalty. That was the, the original business model. Well, I'd gotten a contract and uh, I had hired my first engineering hire. Up to then, I'd done it all myself and my, my uh, partner, Ted Dabney. I had heard that all of a sudden somebody had a video game. So I went up to Burlingame and I, had, and I saw the Magnavox Odyssey game. And I looked at it and I said, boy, this is really crappy. Uh, no competition here because it, it was fuzzy and the, the, it had no score and no sound and uh, could turn the knob and, and direct the ball after you'd hit it. I mean, it was just a lot of things that were wrong with it. But I looked around and there were several units that were set up and people that were there and they were having fun with it on this simple ping pong game. So I drove back and that was Al Alcorn's first day. And so I thought, gee, that's a really simple game. It'd be a really good thing for him to learn the technology on because we were going to be working on a big hockey game that had a lot of moving parts to it. And I gave him a week and he came up with Pong in a week. And uh, it was kind of fun, and we did some modifications, and it got more fun, and then we did some more modifications, and it even got more fun. And I thought to myself, gee, maybe I can give this to my uh, – I had a contract with Bally. I said, maybe this will fulfill our contract, you know, six months early. And so I flew back, and, uh, and uh, they were equivocal about it because – it was only a two-player game, and coin-op in those days always required a, a single-player mode. And so they basically turned it down. And, and while I was back there, they had taken a version of Pong and put it in a cabinet and put it in a local bar. And it just burned the house down with earning so much money. And that's where the, the famous story of the unit quit working because... It took so many quarters that the uh, uh, coin mech got jammed, and uh, that was true. And so I looked at how much it was making, and I said, geez, I can build these myself, and I decided to do it. You know, one thing that really stands out from hearing that again is that, you know, Atari weren't first. Like you said, you know, they were inspired by that electronic ping pong game on the Magnavox Odyssey that was the first home video games console. But I think in many ways, like, you know, kind of Apple did with MP3 players and, you know, smartphones. Atari were really the company that got it right, weren't they? And that introduced the mainstream to gaming. Yeah, totally. And uh, it was kind of huge popularity as well. And like, it must have been quite hard introducing that into a market with like, you know, pinball so dominant and stuff like that. And then to get that success is uh, pretty interesting. But also, they've released a title, like you said, well, it's coming out Atari 50, the anniversary. And this is a giant games collection, isn't it? Yeah, this looks really, really cool. So this comes out, it just says the holiday season, but as far as I know, it's coming out on everything, Switch, PS5, PS4, Xbox One, Xbox Series X. And 
Atari VCS. Atari VCS as well. Don't forget that. <laughs> so this is going to be over 90 titles um, celebrating the 50 years, you know, of Atari, you know, kind of starting with Pong all the way up to like most recent releases. But what's really interesting about this is, well, there's a few really interesting things about it, but I think one of the first things which has got me excited, I know it's got you as well excited as well, Dan, is it's going to be including Jaguar and Lynx games. Um, mm. which we've not, as far as I know, and as far as articles are saying, we've not had any kind of modern re-releases of a lot of these games that you're going to be featuring on here. Now, they've not... Yeah, I mean, there was a collection for the Evercade of the Lynx, but yeah. yeah, in terms of getting them on Xbox and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. it's not, not something that's really been done. And um, we, we've not got, like, a full list but on, on the trailer. There's, like, a minute and a half long trailer. You can spot quite a few of the games on there. There's going to be, like, Cybermore from the Jaguar and... Atari carts and stuff like that, which looks really interesting. But Atari carts is an interesting yeah. one. One of the rarest Atari Jaguar. Yeah, exactly. And you said yesterday that it, a couple of weeks ago it was £200 on eBay and now it's like 50 quid all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, the price has dramatically dropped wow. over the last couple of weeks. So so I don't know whether it's anything to do with this. But, um, but what's really interesting as well, which is really cool, and it kind of comes back to what I was saying, you know, five minutes ago about how Atari hasn't had the best treatment over the last 20 years, kind of with like you know, these flashback consoles and stuff, but this is actually being developed and handled by Digital Eclipse, um, who are responsible for a lot of compilation, recent compilations, which have been really successful and really well-polished, like the Mega Man Legacy Collection, SNK 40th Anniversary, and they're also the guys behind the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the Cowbonga Collection, which we're also expecting later this year. So a lot of these reimagined games do look really nice and really fancy. Um, and it also it does say in the trailer there's going to be six brand new games on there as well, like unreleased games that we've never seen before. So fingers crossed, and this is going to be the, the 50th anniversary that Atari deserves. Yeah, I think this is a good a good kind of mm. idea. You know, it's got 90 playable games, and that's going yeah. to be $40. And we've seen like loads of releases of Atari stuff before. You know, there's always been Atari collections. I think I've got about four or five on different consoles yeah. and stuff. But um. They could have released like an NFT or they mm. could have released something really rubbish. This is quite good, especially with those um, games like you're mentioning. But also it includes some interviews as well. So it's got 60 minutes of interviews with Al Alcorn. It's also got a Howard Scott Warshaw of uh, Yars Revenge and uh, loads of kind of industry members. And it looks like it's a full kind of historical tribute. And it's interesting. We've started to see like releases of cartridges from Atari and uh, uh, now this collection and stuff. And it's like a lot of these modern companies, you know, they they do all this suspect stuff, but um, it's seeming to start to uh, uh, go in the right direction for me, actually. Yeah, I think they're definitely kind of looking back at their legacy and being proud of it now and actually treating it right by the looks of it, which um, is obviously what fans want. And I do think it's nice to have this as well, because I mean, Atari kind of after the the Jaguar, they kind of, you know, dropped off a cliff, really, didn't they? Um, you know, the original Atari, at least. Uh, but I think it is quite nice to have a celebration of more than just Atari 2600 games. Because to me, I mean, you know, even though they were the, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, where it all began for the industry, really, in, in a commercial sense, they don't hold my interest all that well because they're so simplistic, a lot of those 2600 games. But when you get into stuff like the Lynx and the Atari Jaguar and you know, even the 7800 and stuff like that, it is quite nice, I think, to have those games presented in a nice, easy way, you know, to be able to play those on my Switch rather than having to you know, try and tilt my Atari Lynx to see the rapidly fading screen <laughs> and get a battery that's going to last more than an hour in there. 
yeah, it's it's nice and the idea that it'll come to um new consoles and like maybe maybe someone will get this for the cheap price and some younger kids will have a go and then find a few gems in there and stuff. And if you haven't checked out the stuff, definitely check it out. I think it's a a, a good library to look back on. Yeah, so I'll uh, I'll put that trailer and the games that we know so far in our show notes at the retrohour.com. Now it does seem recently, you know, we do an episode about something, then all of a sudden there's a big announcement a couple of weeks later. It's, like, it's almost like we planned yeah, this yeah. stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's like we're, <laughs> we're, we're influencing things. No, we're not. <laughs> Pure coincidence, but very cool. Now, of course, we did an episode all about the Simpsons hit and run a couple of weeks ago, and uh, this looks really impressive. This is a massive open-world remake. Yeah, this is really, really cool. So about a year ago, we covered that there was a uh, a remake made by a guy and he he essentially completely remade hit and run and did like a really nice hd version of it but he completely remade it from the ground up and the kind of the story was is he did it in a week like he made it in a week in the unreal engine 4 and it looked phenomenal and he's always made it clear that these aren't for release you know he can't do anything with it they are just for fun and they're just kind of projects that he puts on youtube for people to watch and essentially, he's released a 17-minute long video pretty much saying he's now had time to kind of, like, play with it. And, like, if he could completely remake the game from ground up in a week, what if he spent a little bit longer on the game? What if he spent six months on the game or a year on the game? And essentially, he's remade the game once again from the ground up, but he's made it on Unreal Engine 5. This has given him the ability to make it a completely immersive, like, open-world game, and it just looks incredible. And there's lots of other features in there, but the main thing is that it's completely open world and that like all the levels are connected to each other now. So you you know, if you want to go to the power plant and then go to Moe's Bar, like they're not on separate levels now. Or if you want to go into like downtown, into the city in Springfield, like they're all in one big world, which is so cool. Um but he did lots of other little things in there, like he's put online multiplayer on there. Um he's played around with like the vehicle physics and stuff like that. And the game just looks stunning as well. But it just once again like begs that just like come on guys like yeah you just need to make it already you know if he's got online multiplayer in there though that must mean that someone else has got a copy of the game yeah that's a good point it's just him and one other person playing it in 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 the video they're both playing as homer and marge so you know it's probably just a friend of his you know who he sent the build over to just for the video um but it is really impressive. What do you think of it, Rabbi? Um, yeah, as mentioned in the interview that we did, uh, the guy called is called Rubes in this on YouTube. Um, mm. As mentioned in the interview, they tried and they'd offered quite a few times to actually do a remake, and it never yeah. kind of uh, uh, came to fruition. But I, I think this is good. Like, it's interesting. He's taking a few bits of artistic license here as well, which is mm. he's he's turned Springfield into an island. Yeah. Um, just to kind of limit it and i, I think one of the suggestions they should have put the dome over it yeah, so yeah. That, that's one that's of the a good idea that's Glass actually dome around <laughs> yeah there. yeah um but also he's added like loads of trees and stuff but he's taken the old map that he did previously uh well exported it and then put it into this new one he's still using 4k upscaling and stuff i wonder how he's going to try and implement quests into this whether this is going to be like an open world gta online style game or it's gonna be like an open world gta offline kind of uh game as well um it's interesting yeah i i I think it's good with the development i hope he doesn't get shut down 
before it gets released. Um, they, he's got a quest and dialogue editor as well, so you can uh, kind of add quests in there. I guess it might he, he become actually, like World of Warcraft at the, one the point. The quest and dialogue editor thing is actually, he made it himself. So I'm assuming, I, I don't know much about him, but I'm assuming he, he is some sort of video game developer, or at least... Man's you know, got is, skills. ...is educated <laughs> in or something, but he actually made the dialogue engine himself and then says the video is sponsored by that as well, like, you know, the company. So that, that part of it's really interesting. So he must be some sort of game developer and he does this for fun on the side, you know, these these remakes. But, you know, it would be great for him to kind of dump this somewhere for somebody to play, but he still say like, at the start of the video he's not going to be doing that, but... Yeah. Maybe he does do it and then, you know, it's up to people to find it and, you know, it's nothing <laughs> yeah. to do with him. But, kind but of also, like, it just shows how powerful, like, the Unreal Engine is and these mm. modern engines that you could kind of do this in it. And it can be implemented by one guy who's just using, like, 4K AI upscaling and stuff. It's pretty amazing. And Freddie Simpsons fan, I mean, God, since I started watching The Simpsons as, like, a, a nine-year-old kid, you know, how much have you wanted to explore Springfield? Oh yeah, like just have a proper walk around. Just have a proper. I mean, it's an island now, but <laughs> yeah, just yeah, have but, a, but have a proper virtual, walk around it. Virtual Springfield, but that was very much on a set path. And like, I wonder, is he going to implement going into buildings? That's that's probably going to be one of his next videos, isn't it? Yeah, that'd be interesting. Like, inside you, the Quickie Mart and stuff. Yeah, you can go in a couple of buildings on um, the original Hit and Run, but they're like. It's not like you just walk into a building off the street. It was like a loading screen and then it was like a set building with a mission in it, wasn't it? Yeah, and the fact, you know, when you were talking to John Melcher the other week, he was saying that, you know, there's been so many attempts to try and get this remade again. He'd yeah. love to see it. I mean, the fact that this one guy has done such a good job on his own in like six months, I think it's mind-blowing. But yeah, it's, again, it just doesn't look like it's going to see the light of day for anyone, which is a bit of a shame. It kind of feels like, yeah, it's got him, you know, 1.5 million views on YouTube but it's, it's no one else is ever going to be able to play it because of all the IPs out there, I mean, releasing a Simpsons game kind of feels a bit on par of releasing an unofficial Star Wars game, you know, that massive IPs. And, and it, like you said, it, it seems to be, yeah, he is using uh, uh, the connected map from another modder as well. So it seems to be like he's pulling in all different different parts of uh, uh, the mods to kind of create this, which is pretty cool. Maybe if he got more people on board, who knows what this could become? Yeah, and if you've got to be his friend to play the multiplayer, I imagine he's probably suddenly got a lot of mates around him who are like, yeah. Yeah, a lot of Simpsons it. fans <laughs> so, hanging <yeah>. around. <laughs> so if you want to see uh, the work he's done so far, it is absolutely jaw-dropping. Uh, I'll put that video in our show notes as well. Now, it was quite sad to see this next story, and it's something that's been kind of bubbling under for a couple of weeks now. Um, we haven't really talked about it because I was hoping it would kind of go away. Uh, but now it kind of it's reached boiling point, sadly. And this is Ron Gilbert. Now, of course, Ron an absolute legend in the video games industry, someone that we've tried to get in this podcast many times over the years. Um, come close a few times, might still happen one day, but at the moment, he's not too happy with the gaming community. As uh, You know he's doing this um, new Monkey Island game, which is the first Monkey Island game that Ron's done since 1992. First one in 30 years since um, LeChuck's Revenge. This is Return to Monkey Island. Now, of course, we've got that trailer that we talked about about a month ago. And since then, over the last week or so, they've released a full video showing a bit more of the gameplay in there as well. But it turns out Ron's had so many, not only people, you know, saying they don't like the look of the game, but actually resorting to people personally attacking him, that now he said he's not going to give us any more updates on it. And in fact, um, at the time of recording this, he's actually shut down his personal blog that detailed, you know, some of the development 
on there as well. He said the negativity is getting too much for him, which I think, you know, treating a legend in the industry like that is just shocking, I think. Sadly, just welcome to the modern world of game development. Um, it's, it's tough, man, putting stuff out. And I know what you mean. Like, if you put effort into something and you put it out, it's going to get torn down. Uh, and that's really disheartening. And uh, I get that, yeah. It's, it's, it's tough as well, especially when you're putting something out that is such a kind of treasured memory to people. People kind of feel yeah. a bit precious about it and maybe that it should just be stuck in that time period personally i think this is awesome and i think things should move on and i think it's good that he's actually uh going down this route and creating this uh, a lot of the complaints seem to be about the graphics or certain things but you know people will always pick at stuff it's tough and uh i think he's a trusted enough developer to produce something decent he's he's produced plenty of decent titles in the past um it's sad that it gets blown up to this level, but hopefully he'll be able to, like, you know, come back and, uh, or he'll just ignore all of it whilst he's developing it, release it, and then let the critics judge at the very end when it actually gets released. Yeah. But I can imagine, you know, you've been hiding something behind the scenes for so long. You release it, and it's always the whinging comments that stand out, isn't it? It's never yeah. the, never the nice ones. And I'm hoping that he does have, quite a lot of praise for it as well so i think you're right there in, in some ways you know you imagine when he made the original couple of games i mean that was the early 90s you know apart from magazine reviews and fans actually writing in there was no way back then to kind of give instant feedback on something that was in development and i do agree that maybe you know you've got to be a bit thicker skin sometimes in the modern world i mean god the amount of <laughs> through my youtube comments on a on a daily basis you know if i didn't have a sense of humor about it i'd probably cry myself to sleep every night yeah um but yeah, I, I do understand, you know, from that perspective. But also, I think there are some people who just, they don't want to see things move on. I mean, you know, a lot of the comments like, what oh, should be pixel art as well. Monk Allen was never about that. It, it always it always pushed the boundaries of the technology that was available as at the time. as long as it's funny as hell, it, yeah, it's going it, to be it? good. Like, that's that's the main thing. And, you know, there's usually a narrative's created around a game and, to be fair, it's usually because of a release like either coming out badly or it coming out rushed and then an update getting a patch to it and stuff. But games get reputations really easily or tarnished with a tarred with a brush or kind of, you know, like GTA when they released that and uh, it was full of glitches and stuff. They they, they fixed it pretty quickly, but um, that's that's still very damaging. And I, I'd hate for this to damage... Uh, kind of new release and stuff so i hope i hope he just kind of can cut out the noise and um yeah. you know develop a really really nice title it looks good. like you said i mean yeah. no one plays monkey allen for the graphics anyway you play it for the humor and the story don't you so it's, that's uh, it no, like, i swear if, if if dan you you're the biggest monkey island fan if you get nostalgia tingles from it then <laughs> i'm sure of as well even the music, you hear that. And I mean, the art style's different, you know. And again, I mean, I've looked at it. It's very different to what I've seen before. I think it looks cool. You know, it's not what you expect from Monkey Island. But again, it's, you know, the fact that he's doing something different. You know, he could have played it safe and done pixel art or whatever, couldn't he? But yeah, for, for years think, you know, we thought that Disney owned the Monkey Island license. He had no way to actually get it back. So after all that yeah. battle and then this, it, it must be disheartening, you know. 
Yeah, so um, give the game a chance before you hate on it. And uh, Ron, if you ever want to come on the podcast, we'd love to have you on. So we'll keep an eye on that. I'm not sure on the release date yet. I heard it was going to be around September, October. Well, I remember um, when so. he tweeted it, he said that most of it was it was pretty yeah. much done. So, um, well, uh, the majority of it was done. So it, it could be sooner than we think. Yeah, it'll be day one purchase for me. Absolutely, you know, being there. Been waiting for this game for 30 years. So not going to let the haters bring it down. <laughs> Now, we are going to be talking about um, a really cool port of Metal Slug that's come into not only the Sega Mega Drive, but also the Atari ST as well, and looks absolutely amazing. And of course, celebrating 35 years of the Amiga 500 with our special guest, Anton Nicola Caulfield, in just a moment. Before we do that, just a quick second to say, if you enjoy what we do here on the Retro Hour, you know, we put the show out each and every Friday. We haven't missed an episode in six and a half years. We get a guest on every week. If you like what we do, could you just... Maybe throw a couple of quid, a couple of euros, a couple of dollars into the tip jar just so we can continue producing this show. We can keep the lights on. Really helps us out if you um, can support us for. It can be the cost of a cup of coffee once a month on Patreon. We do have a Patreon running at the moment. And actually, if you join us on Patreon this weekend, you're going to get the latest episode of our second podcast, if you're a gold member or above, which is called the Retro Hour After Hours. Now, this time, we took a trip back in time. Do the back in time noise, Joe. Oh, the back in time. Diddle-doo, 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 diddle-doo. No, I do. Great third one. To the year 1989. Now, that was a fun episode to go back and do, wasn't you, it? You guys reminded me of dancing Coke cans. God. Dancing okay. Coke cans, yeah. And you ended up on eBay looking looking for one, didn't you? But, oh, God, you know, yeah, I'm gonna, I've already ordered <laughs> dancing Coke cans. Brilliant. Yeah, you know, it was a really fun one. I, I suggested 89 and, you know, we were all a little bit worried about are we going to have enough to talk about? But, you know, I don't want to spoil it, but so much happened in 1989. So many consoles actually came out and had such a huge influence and so many franchises started then and stuff. So, you know, it was really interesting because a lot of our kind of retro years we've done where we've gone back in time and stuff and spoke about it in the late 90s and early 2000s because of they're, they're very nostalgic for us because we can remember them so clearly. So, it was really fun kind of to go back and it was a bit, a bit of a learning-like experience for us as well. So it was a really, really fun episode. I love the fact that we went, not only talked about games as well, we kind of got into a discussion on uh, <laughs> computer viruses and stuff that yeah. came out in that year as well <laughs> and worms and our first viruses and things. So yeah, it was a really fun episode to do. So if you want to check that out, it's available now to our gold patron members or above. Of course, now we're into July. There will be a new patrons hangout coming up this month as well. This is where all our patrons just get on board. We'll have a bit of a chat. You- chat to us we show off our collections and everything as well so you can join us for that you also get the normal podcast early some weeks you get it ad free you get extra content on there that we only give to our patrons so if you'd like to back us on patreon um, we haven't had any new members on patreon for a couple of weeks now but and um, the sign up link is on our website we'd hugely appreciate your support theretrohour.com and of course we'll give you a mention in the hall of fame hopefully next week so let's get into these um, last couple of stories before our chat with Anton nicola caulfield now, this one looks like an incredible port, Metal Slug. Now, there are two new ports of this coming, and these look incredibly impressive for the hardware. I that don't understand on. how this works. It's so good. So, so we covered, sort of covered this a couple of months ago, that there was a port done for Metal Slug on the Mega Drive, but that was quite a basic port. Like, they had a lot of things going on on it like um, a lot of the sound effects and, you know, they were really clear, you know, on that Yamaha chip for the uh, Mega Drive. It was really nice to hear the announcer saying what guns they got and stuff like that. But it was literally just you played as the character and you just ran left or right and just single enemies appeared on the screen. But 
this this beta version that's been made looks so much more in depth. It looks it, it doesn't quite look like well, it looks like the Neo Geo version of Metal Slug, but there's not still quite not as much going on. But there's a lot more going on, isn't there, Dan? Yeah, I mean, you know, you look at the size of the sprites on the screen. Mm. Um, and this is, I mean, it is an update of the one that we mentioned yeah. what, about four or five months ago now. So it's the same guy, but he's put a lot more into the game now. And, and there's actually a seven-minute gameplay yeah. video that you can watch that is on his, his YouTube channel. Although it's not the only version of Metal Slug, there is also a beta version for the Atari ST that I think in many ways is even more impressive. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's mind blowing. Like I'm, I'm looking at the Mega Drive one here, and I can see that it's kind of got a bit of a reduced palette as mm, well. Yeah. Um, I think these are captures off CRT or something, um, because there's a lot of like flickering going on. But they've got the parallax. They've got, uh, uh you know, a lot more enemies in there and stuff. But the STE version, oh my god, it's like I, I, I don't understand how this works. It's uh, it's just it seems to be quite high quality it seems a bit flickery i don't know if that's just the way that they've used to capture it or if it's in some kind of high-res screen mode um uh, you know a lot more about the st than me dan how is this possible well they've actually i mean this is for the atari ste which was the enhanced model of the st i think came out in 1989 so it did have more power than the original st um, I think it had like a, a blitter on board as well. I know there are some no, games four mega RAM audio as well. Well, yeah, this is actually an expanded STE, so um, which makes it actually. If you read this article um, that I'll link up, they actually said that the Atari STE version was actually the easier port to do because of, they've run it on an expanded machine with four megs of RAM. Whereas you look at the <laughs> the Mega Drive, there's actually only 64k of video RAM on there as well. So actually, the STE was the easier version with the expanded memory on here too. But what's really impressive is. Both of these run at a locked 50 frames a second. Mm-hmm. And you look at it, I mean, the ST was never really famed for its scrolling, but it looks butter smooth on this video here. It does look really smooth, and it's really impressive that it isn't just the little soldiers anymore. They have actually got the Metal Slug tanks. They've got some of the big boss tanks. The planes flying across the screen. And and, and I understand this, but it does really make me laugh. When the planes fly across, there's no animation on them. They just, they just like, move yeah. across the screen and drop bombs, um, which, you know, obviously is the limitations of the hardware, but it is really, really amazing that they've got them running on these bits of tech that came out five, six years before Metal Slug even came out, you know, like in arcades and on Neo Geo and stuff like that. And the 50 frames a second, it does look smooth. Like, like I said, they've got liberties with some of the, the animations on there. But how he's done this is, is just unreal. And obviously it's running on um on Everdrives and stuff like that, but it, it just the STE version, like you say, that is just unbelievably impressive as well because of I'm I I've bashed the ST before. Like what I'm used to seeing on there compared to this is insane. And uh, uh, tweets. They're saying about the they're saying about the audio as well. Um that uh you know they've done a, a console audio driver that does compressed digital voices digital audio as well and they've had to compress it down to uh, fit that kind of rom size of less than eight megabyte as well so to have voices in there as well wow (laughs) yeah i mean it does look like a hell of a lot of work has gone into this as well Um, and if you look on their website that i'll link up you can download these versions of them now it's one of these you know name your own prices and they're actually saying i mean there's some future plans for this too including doing a new metal slug adventure with six levels 
So they're saying, you know, they've actually got a little button on there where you can make donations and you can you can buy the game and name your own price. If they get enough cash in, they're going to do a, a brand new Metal Slug game with six levels. Um, and also they're looking at doing a Dreamcast version of it too in the future. So if you want to download the ROM, um, you can play the, the beta so far on your Mega Drive. If you've got an EverDrive, you can load it onto there on an em- emulator. And the Atari STE version is available as well to download from this site as well. They recommend that you have a hard disk rather than, you know, trying to run this off floppies because it is a bit bigger than your, uh, your standard floppy image. But I'll, uh, I'll put all that in our show notes as well. Very, very cool to see fans doing what we previously deemed was impossible on these systems. Now, speaking of stuff that's going to make your retro life a bit easier, have you guys checked out this um, really cool mod? This is the Pico Boot mod chip that unlocks the power of your Nintendo GameCube. So, is this a Raspberry Pi that goes into your GameCube? Yeah, well, it's a Raspberry Pi Pico, which is a tiny, tiny little board, and uh, it fits inside your GameCube, and it allows you to do all the kind of dodgy stuff that a mod chip does allow you to do, but it's not using a boot CD. So, um, I don't really know much about Nintendo GameCube modding. Did you know of any kind of old ones that used like boot CDs before or kind of old chips? No, not really. Um, I, I, I'm a big GameCube, you know, fan. It was like my primary console as a teenager. Um, and there, w- there was a couple of boot discs for like a few kind of like cheat mods in like Simpsons Hit and Run, funny enough, you know, which we'll talk about earlier on. Like, but that was it really. Like there was nothing no chip in or anything like that like people did with the PS1. I don't really remember anything like that really happening with the GameCube. Well, this one is, like you said, it's based on a Raspberry Pi and it's actually using open source software as well. Um, and it turns out there's a few different apparently platforms that you can boot, but the one that most people choose is called Swiss, which is a homebrew system for the GameCube. I imagine, you know, okay. unbox images and all that kind of thing. But also you can run emulators on it too. So the mod chip runs on the Pico, but then you're going to need a second chip as well for the storage so if you watch a video, I mean, you can have one that, you know, you have an SD card storage and stuff in there to put all your images on as well. So really, I mean, yeah, I hadn't seen anything like this back in the day for the GameCube. I imagine there were mods and stuff out there. Um, I know you could you could get those mini CDs, couldn't you, whether they worked on the GameCube, I'm not really sure. But this is kind of the first I've seen of its type. But obviously this being, you know, the agent, you can just actually make your own mod chip. Yeah. Based on, you know, these kind of hardware, the commodity hardware, I think is pretty It's cool. quite mad and it seems like an oddity for me because... When I've been modding stuff on uh, other Nintendo consoles, it's usually be about being about finding a title with an exploit, and then uh, putting code into that and um, being able to run unsigned code that way. But um, yeah, having a physical mod chip in there is pretty interesting, especially one that you can flash and that has functions mm. like Wi-Fi on it and stuff that might you know be implemented in the future. It's it's a pretty awesome idea, and it's cool that. Uh, I think we've covered another Pico mod chip as well. There was a PlayStation one, I think. Um, but it's cool to see these kind of little Raspberry Pis being uh, used to morph into something else and uh, perform different actions. You could do anything with a Raspberry Pi, can't you? Well, especially the Picos, because they are the size of like a microchip, really, aren't they? So they can fit inside, you know, small systems like the GameCube. And this is by a guy called WebHDX. He's quite well known on the on the scene. Um, and he's made it all open source. You can get the, the software and everything from GitHub. It uses the Raspberry Pi Pico board, which is only $4. Looks really straightforward to install as well from this video. It's only like five wires, I think, you've got a solder. And then you program it via 
a USB cable. You don't need drivers or programs or anything like that. Um, and it uses apparently this thing called the IPL injection approach. Okay, um, so it's still, which is still an injection to, kind of thing going yeah. on. Yeah. It bypasses the GameCube's BIOS, essentially, so it means that you can, you know, all the security and everything's gone, you can boot into homebrew applications. So it looks really affordable as well. I mean, the fact that these boards are only... And actually, I think the Picos are one of the few Raspberry Pis you can actually still get at the moment as well, because a lot of the, the higher-end models, due to the chip shortage, is, uh, you know, currently out of stock. Just um, um, raid Dan's drawers in his house. I'm going to say, I've got quite a few of them around here. Yeah. <laughs> Does this work with a SSD adapter then, or like an SD adapter, so you can kind of boot ISOs and games off there? Yeah, so the saying, I mean, there's actually, um, if you go on the GitHub, there's kind of a list of the recommended kit. They reckon a Raspberry Pi Pico, uh, an SD Gecko, or an SD2 SP2 adapter, and an SD card as well, so all your games and homebrew live on the SD card. And it looks, you know, in terms of mod chips, I mean, I have fitted some before. I remember, you know, trying to do unsuccessfully on your Sega Saturn a few years ago. Um, managed to get mine working. But yeah, yeah, some of them are quite complicated. I remember looking at modding an Xbox 360 with a hardware, hardware mod a few years ago, and I was like, yep, not going to do that. <laughs> I think it was like uh, soldering about 200 cables or something. But this, you know, even for someone with basic electronics knowledge, I think looks um, pretty straightforward. So a good way to unlock the potential of your GameCube, if you want to check that out. As I mentioned, it's open source and on GitHub. I'll put the link in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, we're going to chat to this week's special guests and celebrate 35 years of the Amiga 500 in just a moment with Ant and Nicola Caulfield. Before we do that, I love this sound. That is the sound of making another sale on Shopify. Now, if you sell anything online, Shopify is a platform to use. If you want a platform that's really simple and straightforward to use, anyone can use it. And you can sell it anywhere. And we want to say a big thank you to Shopify, who have sponsored this week's episode of the Retro Hour podcast. Now, I know you, Ravi, you're a, a web developer. You know, you, you set up websites for a lot of companies and individuals. Shopify is also a platform of choice that you go to if they want to sell anything through their sites. Yeah, I'm absolutely hopeless with uh, setting up e-commerce and stuff. And Shopify just makes it really easy. One thing I don't want to be doing is kind of e-commerce support, sorting out all the payment yeah. systems and stuff. And uh, they accept every major payment method. They've also got 24-hour support. So it's it's really awesome. I've had uh, many clients that have enjoyed Shopify stores. And, uh, you know, you can start off small and then expand and uh, grow your business. Yeah, and a lot of massive companies already use Shopify, like Gymshark, um, Huel, you know, Lounge, you might have heard of them as well. So they are a growing company right now. And uh, your business, if it's growing too, is a really good platform that just takes all the headache of doing your own e-commerce stuff as well. And they give you really in-depth analytics. So you can see kind of what's selling, the insights that you need to grow your business as well. With Shopify's single dashboard, you can manage your orders, shipping and payments from anywhere. So we'd love you to try out Shopify for yourself. If you sell anything online, Give this a go. Sign up for a free 14-day trial by using our exclusive link to get this deal. And of course, you'll be helping out the podcast by doing it as well. Shopify.co.uk slash retro hour. That's shopify.co.uk slash retro hour right now to grow your business today. And a massive thank you to our friends at Shopify. Now, next, we're going to look back on 35 years of the Amiga 500 with this week's very special guest, Anton Nicola Caulfield, coming up next on the Retro Hour podcast. 
You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for our favourite bit of the show when we welcome on our very special guests. And today, two people who are very good friends of the Retro Hour and we love having them on. Always so interesting to talk to and produce some fantastic movies as well, of course. Most well-known for the Bedrooms to Billions movies, but several others as well. It's welcome back, Ant and Nick Caulfield. How are you doing? Hello, Hello there. Hello. Hello. Good, thank you. <laughs> Nice to have you back on. I think it's uh, probably due a catch-up. Normally about once a year we get you on for a little uh, little chat about what you're doing because you're all so busy, you guys. Yeah. There's an old line, I think, somewhere. Sometimes some boredom wouldn't go miss. You know Yeah. That? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, last time we had you on, I mean, you were working on um, the Rubberkeyed Wonder, celebrating 40 years of the ZX Spectrum. So that must have been about a year ago that we were talking about that. How's that project been going since? That's been going very well. Yeah, we've got some wonderful interviews in there. Um We've stopped filming for the moment just so we can focus on the editing part of it. So it's all coming together really well. And then there are a few more pickup interviews that we're going to do um, yeah. within the next couple of months. And that's kind of because of people's availability. Um, so, yeah, it's going really well. Really happy with it. I think the thing I liked the most about it was um, it was obviously after all the disruption of the last two years. Um, and yeah. everybody was attempting to try and work through the pandemic and do their best and, and everything else. I think it was just lovely to be back out on the road again and not feeling like, you know, strange just going out and doing interviews again. It, it was uh, it was really good. And we actually decided to really put a lot of huge effort to get a really fast start on the project. And we spent, um, unfortunately, January we were ill with COVID, but um, February um, we basically started the next next load of filming. And, oh, it was so intense, wasn't yeah. it? But it was brilliant. And we yeah. were very, we've been, we've now, we're very happy to have the Sinclair family involved now, um, both Grant and Crispin, uh, Crispin uh, being Sir Clive's son, are now involved. And they've um, given us access to some absolutely jaw-dropping archive unseen archive photographs all sorts of things so it's been that's been a real high point of getting their involvement and i think um i think the other thing that since we last spoke as well is is we were we're actually staggered by how popular the spectrum was around the world and i just speaking as somebody who grew up in in the uk you tend mm-hmm. to sort of think in that sort of insular way of this you know the spectrum british sir clive sinclair all of that and then when you realize how heavily cloned the, the ZX Spectrum was and the ZX81 before that, there were various names all over the world, and the millions of units that they shifted worldwide, it's coming quite close to the number of Commodore 64s that were sold. But of course, Commodore 64 was its own system with its own name, whereas the Spectrum obviously was many names in many different, many different well, countries. We didn't actually know much about the clones, did we? Until we were running the campaign. When we were running the Kickstarter campaign, people were writing to us and saying, do you realise how cloned it was? Um, and we didn't, we didn't. So um, then that was a big thing that once we had the um, funding in place, we were reaching out to various people that we knew could discuss that a little bit more for us. So it has been fascinating. Yeah. 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 And uh, I think that's, that's the thing that, that the love for that system, I mean, you know, obviously we covered some of this ground when we, when we did the talk last time, but I think that Mm -hmm. if anything, it's, it's cemented in as how important this film is. Um, And we, we've put in, I mean, we always put in a huge effort, and it just feels natural to just do your best. But I think in this, in this instance with this film, I think it's, I don't want to say it's turning out better than we thought. It's just, I think it's, I think it's more focused than I thought. I, I think, think there's more angles that we just yeah. didn't know existed that we're able to explore. And, um, and we interviewed Phil Candy and, um, and that was fascinating because he was talking about the whole design 
of the Spectrum. Just to explain, Phil Candy was Rick Dickinson's design partner for more than 25 years, basically. Mm. So he was the best example, uh, with Rick obviously having passed away in 2017. Yeah, Um, and, and he just explained the whole, you know, what goes into designing things the industrial, whole, the, design, the industrial yeah. design and it was an absolutely fascinating interview it was just watching like how he explained that what they're more interested in is the inside of the spectrum and that because then they'd be saying well this is how the components fit within the the case whereas we're all like oh we're looking on the outside of it and how lovely it looks and I'd never really thought about it like that before and um and it yeah. was just really interesting and the keys aren't rubber um, which was the first thing he said he wanted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to rename the film now, then, yeah. <laughs> what so, did you call them again? I, I knew you were going to. Yeah, I, yeah. I was deliberately going to uh, skip that one. It, it's um, not quite as catchy, though. No, it's the, not. If we changed it from rubber to what this word is, and now we can't think when, of it. When we're doing interviews, we're writing notes all the time, and I think we were talking off air at the, at the start about how so much information leaves my brain. Um, mm-hmm. and how much I rely on my notes when, when we're doing uh, interviews. But as Nicola was saying, the industrial design, again, it, it could if, if you'd taken the PCB of the Spectrum and put it into a, a very undesirable rubbish case, um, there's people should probably be shouting out, listening to this now, <laughs> making suggestions of certain systems, but then it just wouldn't have sold the same numbers. There's so much that has to go in to make, a, to make an object desirable. You know, in this instance with the, with the ZX Spectrum, the visual design, Rick Dickinson's beautiful industrial design to make it appealing, which is and another thing, it was black. And mm. you go back to computers back in the late 70s, early 80s, it wasn't the colour that was used. Um, beige, weren't they? Yeah, beige, beige yeah. or, you know, and they looked of their time. Mm. Whereas the Spectrum, and certainly I think, funny enough, to more of a degree, the ZX81, they don't look like their um, early 80s designs. Now, somebody actually said to me recently that's rubbish but and they might well be right but i think the thing is as much as i love the commodore 64 it looks like of its time whereas yeah. the spectrum does have that timeless look the size the weight of it and and everything else so there was a lot more we wanted to explore so being able to get stuck into obviously we've interviewed richard Altwasser and dr steve vickers who designed the pcb and wrote the manual all the sort of technical aspects that people would expect from our work is going to be in here um times 10 probably and um but obviously things like the visual appeal um of the of the spectrum how it was marketed we've we've interviewed um alison for example who goes into how she actually marketed the spectrum got it out there and started to spread the word and all sorts of other aspects inside sinclair and we've learned so much more about the company as well about how they survived how they were you know there was financial issues and how they were trying to sort of get past them and and things like that so some some very funny stories as well in there and i think the other nice thing is that they all speak so fondly of clive so clive and um and that's been really nice and there's stuff that i've never heard before there as well so yeah it's just it's been just a really nice project to be working on and, uh, it sounds like it's going to be a you know real tribute to the Spectrum and Clive as well. I mean, uh, how, how kind of far along is it then? Can we expect it maybe this year? Or we planned it we for this year, and we're yeah. working really hard to make sure we stick to that deadline. Um, it, some of the filming's gone slower than we hoped. Simply availabilities, and when we did start filming, there was still it's hard to remember really, but it's it's there was still COVID and. You know, there were still some restrictions even when we started the project last year. Um, but we have got a huge amount of interviews now done. They're really happy with how they've come out. We've had a lot of great archive come in. So in some ways we're ahead of ourselves, but it's always that 
I'll tell you where it really is decided is really when we actually start really getting amongst the edit. Um, Nicola's been editing now for quite some time. We have a shorter running time for this film as well, but there's a lot of other featurettes and things that come But it, but it come is coming it. along nicely. Yeah. yeah. We're really pleased yeah, with yeah. it. Wonderful. Well, obviously really excited to see that. I mean, today, though, we're here to um, talk about a subject that we love talking about on this podcast. We're talking about the Amiga. And, of course, you're no stranger to that, having produced the wonderful Bedroom Stabilians, the Amiga years a few years ago. Um, but actually, this weekend, this is actually the final weekend on Kickstarter. People can get involved in this. So um, if you want to support this project, obviously, I'll link up all the details in our show notes as well. But tell us about this new project, then, that you've got for the Amiga. Over the last couple of years... We've had um, people write to us about, oh, it'd be great if you can explore this or explore that. And we've got, obviously, we've amassed hundreds and hundreds of hours of, of unused footage over the years. Um, and because when we interview somebody, we tend to sort of go for the kitchen sink and sort of we've got someone in the interview chair. The interviews can range between two to three hours. And we just have it as a really good chat. But we go in with a lot of research beforehand so we can sort of trigger memories and things like that. So people would write to us with these suggestions and one thing that continually kept coming up over and over again was a500 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 um the amiga 500 in the amiga years um as some people may remember obviously we were trying to fit it into a still very long two and a half hour film and the a500 kind of got i hate to say this sort of stepped over a little bit in favor of of moving into game development and other things because once we told the a1000 story which is really where Obviously, the huge amount of innovation went on. Don't get me wrong. There's innovation in the A500, which we'll come to in a minute. But once we told the A1000 story, at some point, we needed to leave that narrative and start bringing in how it affected game development. So the film sort of almost halfway through changes. So we people said we'd love it. The A500 is, is a kind of story on its own it kept coming up and because of the 35th anniversary of the a500 this year maybe because of the mini that was released i don't know we were getting something like i mean for us it's a lot when you're getting 10 15 emails a month um mm -hmm. you're thinking okay there does seem to be something here so we spent some time and we looked into it and we thought okay with all the we've got bob welland we've got dave haney we've got a number of ex other commodore staff that we've interviewed and we thought well there's there's certainly a a, a very specific a500 story because the A500, uh, um, for those that don't know, it came out two years after the, the A1000. And the A500 was, came about because of the failure of the A1000. And I, I'm not suggesting for one second that it's not, it wasn't a good machine, but it didn't sell. And that's, the, that's from Commodore's point of view, that was a, obviously a big problem. So the A500 was, was an attempt to make something more Commodore-like something that yeah, more affordable yeah well yes more affordable and but also something which could be sold in shops like toys r us whereas the problem with the a1000 is it could only be sold in specialist computer stores because it had to be set up it was like a pc so yeah, yeah. um it had to be set up and no one had a clue how to use it so it required a trained person to actually say right this is called the amiga 1000 this is what it does but most people just remember this machine that looked like a PC with a ball bouncing on the screen. And obviously there's more to it than that, but it, it required a lot more. Frank Leonardi tells a great story. He was ex-Commodore and he said, Commodore ran out of patience. And he said, if they'd only waited another year, we could have got so many more computer shops on board, but they didn't come on board. Commodore ran out of patience and they wanted 
a Commodore 64 replacement, basically something that would be in a box that can sit on a shelf in Toys R Us and the other games, the other outlets, the toy shops, effectively. So the A500 was putting East Coast Commodore staff onto effectively uh, a cost reduction project. We need to take something which costs X and we need to make it a lot cheaper and put it into a single case that can be outputted through to a television set. Um, and there's a lot more to it than that. But obviously that eventually, by 1987, led to the release of the Amiga 500. So when we looked at all of our rushes, we realized, okay, well, all this stuff's unused. We never included it in, in the Amiga years. But it won't. we're not sure it's sustainable for a whole film. But it is certainly an episode. It's something that will comfortably fill 60 minutes, 50 to 60 minutes. So we then, because other ideas had been coming in from, from fans, um, we've had ones about Resident Evil, we've had all sorts of other ideas. We thought maybe we need a series which kind of sits in between our films. So subject matter that can't necessarily exist in a full-length feature documentary could exist in a short, a slightly shorter form surrounded by featurettes that that are deep dives, further deep dives into those I th- subjects. I think they're kind of like a, a it's like a companion piece to yeah. our films because the thing that we find with our films is there's so many different angles we'd like to go off in so much detail we'd like to put in there that you know we have to kind of restrain ourselves hold back from doing that and that was what happened with the a500 we just couldn't go into the detail that we wanted to go into in the amiga years because it would have probably given it about a four hour running time and it would have been too long for it, an, it would have just been too much and too long to put it in as an extra it would yeah. have been a 40 45 so, um, 50 minute extra that's kind of where we came up with the idea of the gaming chronicles we thought that'd be quite nice because it allows us to you know give people an opportunity to be a bit more long form if you like within the edit so they can talk a little bit more we're not having to be constantly constrained by running times because <laughs> i know this will probably be longer than we actually say yeah <laughs> we did get a little bit <laughs> carried away with our running times but um so yeah so uh, that's where it came from isn't it and um and then we like i said like anthony said we do get written to and say could you do this could you do that and the a500 was one that that came up quite a bit so we're quite happy to be doing this because uh as I say, we didn't get to go into too much detail in the film. So we came up with the idea of the Gaming Chronicles, which I have no idea which one of us actually came up with that name. But we thought Gaming Chronicles, episode one, the A500 story. And that way we can then, we can tell stories. I mean, we've even got stories, there's loads of extra stuff that we've considered from the original from Bedrooms to Billions, where there's the whole, as boring as this, I think I've probably said this before, I do apologise, but like about the whole nature of how games distribution in the UK started and how mm. we were able to start getting audio cassettes mass produced, which was not something that was was an easy task. Even even the companies making audio cassettes for for musical albums in the early eighties, the res the quality wasn't high enough. So there's all, and we've got we had this huge hour long timeline. It was really interesting about how the early games started to come out across the UK, and there were those there was lots of things like that that we've got, like as we mentioned before, there's Resident Evil, and there's other there's a whole thing about the early Japanese games industry. We've got all these chunks that we never quite knew what to do with, that need to be properly, you know tightened and and graded and all the sort of things that you would you would want to see in something professionally done but we don't have the the constraints of having to um to do it as a main film so obviously with this episode one the a500 story we can tell the story of the a500 and then we've come up with the idea of six featurettes that sit with it as well and they're self-contained featurettes that allow us to show so much of that un 
it's all unseen. It's never the idea is it's all unseen material. So it's things like a bit more on the demo scene, more on about uh, audio of the Amiga, uh, also more on the video toaster and some of the other applications for the Amiga. Video toaster is a if you've not used it was an absolutely stunning um, nonlinear nonlinear editing system that that utilised the Amiga's chipset and was light years ahead of um, of of some of the early things like Avid and, and other things and gave a a really really low price non-linear editing system which funny enough was was tim jennison the the head of video toaster found hard to sell because it was cheap people thought oh right. you know i would take it seriously 60 yeah. grand on an avid system when i could yeah. where i feel uncomfortable spending four grand on the I, you know on an amiga 2000 or amiga 4000 running this um running this amazing software there's there's obviously more to it than that so that would exist nicely as a featurette and there's so we come up with these six featurettes that drill into creating graphics on the Amiga, doing audio on the Amiga, the demo scene. So then you get a nice package. You've got the A500 documentary, the six featurettes. We get to give the Amiga community more properly edited up footage. Um, and um, and really, that was the idea. Well, of and- course, um, one of our stretch goals on the campaign was to uh, do some more filming as well. So yeah, yeah. we have got to one stretch goal, haven't we, where we're going to be doing some more interviews two more lined up jeff porter's um, lined up now the uh the, head of the oh, wow. a500 yeah, and project, if we yeah. get if we get to 50 then there's uh two more interviews that we're going to do as well so we're going to keep adding to our interview it's list. Be quite surreal that doing yeah. interviews again for the amiga it's it's uh sort of <laughs> kind of think when you move on to the next thing but i think this would i think as we sort of said in our kickstarter video there's a sort of a completist element to us as well um and you sort of look jeff porter was a miss for us from the first film so the idea of him coming back to do so it gives it, it it means that not only are people getting unseen material they're getting newly shot material as well so we're delighted it went through its funding goal in the first week and then we started um chiseling away at the um at the stretch goals and we've already as nick said we've already secured one of the one of the extra filming dates but we we did actually start it as a digital only project because that's the thing the rubber keyed wonder is a, a full-blown production requiring lots of filming lots of complicated production elements Whereas, so we said, okay, to, to satisfy this requirement, people are asking us about the A500. We've got that edit that already exists that's pretty good. So we know we're not going to have the same level of workload in, in terms of that. Um, so we've got a good starting position. Um, we'll make it digital only. That way we don't have to worry about perks or anything else. We can just concentrate on getting that out for Christmas. And we thought if it does well, we'll put, we'd be stupid to not put some stretch goals in there. But it kind of it kind of did better than we thought. And then we started getting people saying, please do a Blu-ray. Well, not in that voice, obviously. But um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that kind of says, you know, how important the Amiga 500 was to people. Because you mentioned like the Amiga 1000. Very much, I think that was a machine that came along. They were trying to market it as, you know, the creative machine. It kind of felt like Commodore didn't know quite who to market that as. Yeah. But obviously the, the 500 came along and that was a machine that the kids and teenagers got in the bedrooms and started doing demos on and playing video games on and that kind of thing too. I mean, a very important machine for a lot of people. H- have you got a personal history with the Amiga 500. Yes, we do. We do actually. Um, though it's, I think for some Amiga fans listening to this, they will consider it a dirtied history because it actually started. <laughs> my dad worked, my dad was involved in the music industry for most of his career. And um, he came home in, I think it was about 86 with an Atari. I'm just going to say the words. I'm sorry. An Atari ST 1040. Um, mm. And, um, and I, I obviously got, that was my first experience of 16 bit computing or 68,000. Uh, computing and then uh, very soon after 
um, about 1989, I think I got a A500. And um, it's... Did we play kickoff? We used to play... Did we play kickoff? Don McLee's kickoff, I can remember. Yeah. I've got all the games on the shelf I do, here. I do like a nice football. I love a football game. <laughs> In fact, when we, used to, when we first started going out, um, I think she'd co- you'd come over... And I'd watch Red Dwarf, and you'd tell them to play kickoff. Yeah, and it'd be, and it'll be. That's when we first, when we first started going out. That's that's what used oh, to happen. I could, I could play it for hours. <laughs> the, the Amiga was at my house then. Yeah. Um, I'm just looking at some of the uh, yeah Frontier. So many, um, there's so many Amiga games we played. I was talking about. Funny enough, I fired up a game called Dark Seed. Somebody mentioned it to yeah. me recently the other day. I mean, it literally sensible soccer. I mean, the number of Amiga games that we had. Um, well, we've still got that down there, but. It was, I think it kind of felt to us like it was the, um, it was such, it felt like such a step up in terms of quality of gaming um, and, and where, where things were going. And obviously it being a disc-based system as well, it was, it just felt like the, ne- the next generation. Certainly from me, I came up from, from the Commodore 64, Nicola came from the, came from the ZX Spectrum. And funny enough, I'll tell you a little story very briefly. We got an, um, Carl Sassenrath who worked on the original Amiga team for Amiga Inc. He'd um, come across the campaign and he said, I'm so glad you're doing it. I won't read it exactly what he said because it's quite a long email, but effectively he's saying that um, he is so pleased we're doing the A500 because he goes, the A500 for him was more repre- represented the true Amiga, even though he worked on the A1000 because he said when he joined the project in 1983, he was under the impression they were doing some kind of almost Commodore 64 type games project. So the Commodore 64 yeah. was viewed as a games a games computer. And somebody said recently, a, uh, a games console with a keyboard. It, it was designed specifically for, for um, writing, playing great games on. So he, he saw the Amiga as a games machine. And he felt that from 1983-84, as they realised how amazing the technology was, that the, the project kind of got pulled over into being this supercomputer so, or, or an amazing design tool. So he felt when the A500 finally came out in 87, which he had very little to do with, obviously, because it was a, it was an East Coast project. Um, he was, he said he was really pleased and he was so happy that, that the Amiga did actually find that gaming audience because that's why he joined the project in the first place in 83. And it is an, it is a very interesting story. I mean, there's obviously, a, it's a chip related story of uh, obviously taking components and reducing them down but effectively it's still the same core technology as the as the amiga 1000 and it just opened the door um for for amiga games so rather than it just being a design computer it became a a proper console it became a game a games computer and then we could start to get as the 80s progressed into the into the later 80s the cheaper price of the a500 made it affordable got it out there we know that you know it's a familiar story once you start getting the the install base up um, more developers start producing games for it and it goes on and on and on. And uh, one of the other things I found personally interesting about the A500 is how long it actually lasted for. I mean, it was, um, you know, Sensible World of Soccer came out very late in its, um, what was it, very 96, 95, mm. 96, and sold a million units. So it was a, um, and probably about 9 million copies. But, <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know what I mean? But it was still very, um, it, it, was, it went on and on. It went on for a, for a long time um, for something that effectively was based on technology developed in the early 1980s. 
You know, I find that point you mentioned then as well quite interesting about, you know, how many copies were out there of games too. Um, and that always felt like a bit of a, an elephant in the room kind of when you read Amiga magazines and stuff like that as well. Every kid I knew at school had, you know, boxes of copied discs. And a lot of them actually, you know, I remember kids at school getting Amigas instead of Mega Drives and stuff because they had access to these copied games. I mean, yeah. do you think piracy helped to harm the Amiga gaming scene? Do you know something? I joined a thread recently that was in the hundreds and it's the same arguments every time. Some people, if you're okay, if you're a developer and you're relying on that royalty to to keep the lights on, it's not funny. You know, if you if you hear that every, out of every one game sold, nine were copied, it might prevent you from continuing with your craft. And I yeah. think that you know, as a filmmaker, we only re- we rely on people that if we do a good job, people buy our films, it allows us to move on. You know, our, our lifestyle is just based on the next project. That's all we, you know, that's all we really know. We do our best. If people like it, they buy it, we move on. And if obviously we weren't getting money from, from the films, we couldn't make more. That perhaps is one of the main arguments of the um, of the copy scene is that obviously it's taking revenue away from the developers. But then the argument splits off all over the place and people say, well, the, the cost of the games was ridiculously high. And also, if you if there was better protection and people couldn't copy them, like people weren't able to really copy Mega Drive games. Obviously, any cartridge-based system, it's incredibly... You're going to sort of incredible lengths if you're going to try and recreate a cartridge game on a PC um, and things like that. So obviously that meant that... The, at least if you want if a game was successful the revenue was going back and at least filtering back through to, to develop the, the, to, through to the developers so the answer is i'm ducking it a bit because i know how much it hurts developers and i i've interviewed nickel and i've interviewed countless developers who told us they had to leave the industry due to that that early 90s period where just royalties just weren't coming in and there's other things in, involved in that as well but i'll always everything we always do tends to lean towards game development in terms of that side of things because without it you know our films wouldn't exist and computers themselves were created obviously as tools for people to do things with and one of those is obviously developing developing games so i think if a game developer spends two years on a project and then they lose a a load of the revenue um then they're more stretched they're then making financial decisions based on the money they didn't receive which perhaps they were hoping to receive I think, is that an answer? Have yeah. I even given any sort of answer on that one? Yeah, I well? Well, no, I think you're right. Cause I, I remember, you know, like reading Amiga Format and stuff like Amiga Power magazines like that back in the day. I did kind of notice what felt like a bit of a mass exodus of a lot of these companies around 93, 94. Yeah. You know, when, when the Amiga was still, you know, selling, but I think due to piracy, they kind of preferred to develop on consoles where it was harder to copy games and they're going to get more money for the return, I guess. Well, the, the, I mean, the, the, the problem with that era... Um, a lot of people have nicknamed it the shovelware era. And the reason yeah. they call it that is because if you were doing, not all console, obviously not all console games were shovelware. I'm not even remotely suggesting that, but it did become a risk averse era where, because you had so much upfront, you had to put so much upfront capital down to pre-order the cartridges. You had to hedge your bets. You go bust. So, mm. People would then say, "Okay, we'll do a game that we think will sell because that one last year sold." And um, safe, yeah, safe. you play it safe yeah. because because of the cartridge industry was really quite a broken. Mo- well, I say broken, but it wasn't a fair model. 
you know, you're having to put all that risk up front. So you've got to be really careful what game you decide to develop for that console system, which back then in the early 90s has obviously been the SNES and the Mega Drive, um, Genesis, uh, for example. But the Amiga was an open platform, and obviously you still, like the whole demo scene that came about, and I think this is the thing you see when the other side of, uh, of the argument with piracy is the vast majority of Amiga fans back then, I was one of them, couldn't afford the games, and they were readily available. So you, of course, you're going to take the game. You're going to you're going to hand a disc over, and uh, you know it's not something I'm proud of. Um, but it's it, and certainly when I came to understand how how um, how what, what that was like later. But kids want to play games, and and the Amiga 500 was a was a fantastic system that allowed them to play so many great games. And and unfortunately, it was so easy to get them to to copy them. So yeah, it did represent. Um, a very very difficult era, I think, for the for the industry. Certainly in times of in terms of creative cr- creativity being able to get through. But of course, that doesn't mean that there still were stunning numbers of great Amiga titles. I mean, funny enough, when we were putting together a list, people have been writing to us for quite some time over possible um, game making ofs that we can include with this project. I mean, we've still got we've got like a really really long kickoff one and two and goal making of with Dino Dini. We've got a really long Jim. Do you know the game Defender of the Crown? Jim yes. Sa- well, yeah. Jim Sachs yeah. only yesterday just emailed us all his original first designs, like the first things he was doing on Deluxe Paint um, for Defender, never seen before. Um, Eric Chai with you know Future Wars. I mean David Braben Frontier Elite Two. We've got we've, we've got, got that nice done. With, uh, Eric Chai, we? We've got some amazing B roll yeah. with him, which we're going to include in this project with him getting all the when we interviewed him for the original Amiga years talking about another world he then proceeded to get all the props out of the cupboard so what happened was once we finished the interview we just left the camera rolling for over an hour and it was handheld camera but all very well properly shot of him talking about each prop in more detail and we never included any of it in the in the last film and it's really really interesting so as an extra even though there wasn't a, another world making of on the Amiga years we're going to include some of that because it's it's gold if, if anybody's interested in that game and there's a lot of other stuff um huge amount of other, i'm really looking forward to finally getting the um the damocles making of out you know one thing if i think of the amiga 500 one thing that springs to mind for me would be those um you know, incredible packs that Commodore oh, put them yeah. in. I remember friends getting the Batman pack, and my first one was at the Cartoon Classics yep. pack that I got for Christmas 91. I mean, how key do you think they were to the success of getting Amiga 500s into kids' bedrooms? Critical. I mean, obviously the Batman pack was a significant release. Um, in the, I believe it was 89, um, and it uh, and David Pleasance David actually Blessings, gave us the figures. Say, yeah. It was it, They sold 3.5 million units. It got the Amiga absolutely out there and across Europe. And putting those packs together was a way of getting, obviously, so many more games out there. Made them so uh, such appealing Christmas presents, which, if you think about it, was that same model that was happening with the Spectrum and the Commodore 64 in the early 80s, you know, of a, of a games machine in, bundled in with games, a lovely box that can be wrapped up and put under the tree. So we're going to get some, no doubt that there's a lot of A500 stories that are similar to receiving your first Spectrum, you know, under the tree, there it was, unwrapped it. Oh, you know, and this amazing, amazing computer. Um, so, yeah, that, I think that's uh, those packs were very significant. I always like the fact that they put stuff in there like um, like Deluxe Paint, because I know a lot of people kind of look back on the Amiga and you think of the games and everything as well, but it was more than just a games machine, wasn't it? Because I remember, you know, Christmas Day, you know, I played the games and everything, Lemmings, you know, for a few hours, but then sitting down on D-Paint, being able to 
make cartoons, you know, admittedly only about 10 frames, yeah. <laughs> like a stick man walking across the screen. But that, I mean, you'd never seen anything like that before. So I think in some ways it kind of feels like the Amiga gets unfairly labelled as a games machine in hindsight a lot of the time, doesn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a, um, going back again to the, the A1000, which effectively the A500 is a more powerful uh, machine. It's got more RAM in it for a start. Um, and um, it was it had that tagline, the A1000, you know, of leading the creative edge. Mm. Um, because of the sound ability, because of its graphical ability. So, yes, you're quite right. Um, getting Deluxe Paint was probably a lot of people's first entry into doing any form of graphics, any form of artwork. And having it on a, on effectively what you may have been bought for you as a games computer or, or as a games machine, these are the creative elements. I mean, it's sampled. It was a sampler. It could it could sequence, so it, it could it could it could give you audio opportunities as well as graphical opportunities. And as we've already said earlier, um, with things like Video Toaster, again, which utilizes that unique chipset that the Amiga had, it offered non like very very early but non-linear editing um, for people to actually start doing their own their own editing, which again was a a major thing in the late eighties, early nineties. And D-Paint, I mean, that was kind of industry standard, wasn't it? I mean, the people we've spoken to on this show, and I know people that you've had on Bedrooms to Billions, you know, talking about the fact that even when, you know, you go into a game studio back then that was making Mega Drive games, there'd generally be an A500 there running D-Paint for sprite artwork and stuff. That's the crazy thing, isn't it? It's it's that people, were, the Amiga was a brilliant tool. So, they, yes, they were using it to create graphics and other things as assets for games for other platforms. So, yes, that was a very that was a very common thing. We saw that with um, um, when we were doing interviews with Ocean staff, and they were doing exactly the same thing. They were using the Amiga as a design tool for n- not necessarily for its own for the same platform, but for other for console games and other things. But yeah, absolutely right. Another well, sixty four is you know I think until recently the Commodore sixty four held the title of the best selling model of home computer of all time until I think the Raspberry Pi overtook it just like a year or two ago. (laughs) But why do you think the A500 never reached quite the success of the 64 then? Was there anything from your research and the people you've spoken to that suggested a reason why it didn't sell like 36 million like the the 64 did? Yeah, because of the Commodore 64. Um, I think think the Commodore, I mean, we'll hopefully explore this. We are going to be doing a Commodore 64 film at some point. and we'll, we'll look into exactly why that's the case. But I think the Commodore 64's install base um, was at a time when computing was still new. So people were buying Spectrum's Commodore 64's, those 8-bit computers in the early 80s. And even if you go to 1987, while you could argue 87, 88, when the A500 came out, the A500 only really, really caught fire in 89. So if you think it had already been, the technology had already been out for sort of five years by this point, the Commodore 64 was still actually selling really well. It was, I wouldn't say a problem for Commodore, but it was even in 89, it was still selling great units. Um, and it was still, there was still amazing games still coming out on it. So I think if there, if in a way the A500 had come out in 1982 or 83, and there hadn't been a Commodore 64, then we'd just be talking about the A500 in that term. It, I think it just simply being those early install bases, it, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that people are, gonna fl- are going to give up their C64s or their Spectrum straight away. I mean, even when we've been doing the Rubber Keyed Wonder, the number of people we've interviewed that were still playing their Spectrums way into the 90s because there were still games coming out and they were still in love with the machine. But of course, the A five hundred did sell millions. But it, yes, it didn't come into that same bracket of uh, of, of what was it nearly forty million units that the uh, the C sixty four sold. 
And that's our opinion anyway. I think David Pleasance felt that it was it was the current install base, 128, the C64, um, PCs as well were, were obviously becoming more and more popular by the by the, um, the late 80s. We still weren't yet at the multimedia stage of uh, Windows 95 and things, but PCs were still, were still coming up. And, of course, the console market, you know, if you think the NES... Um, the NES was dominating in the US by the uh, by the end of the 80s. Then we had the Game Boy. So you've got all these other distractions, whereas the Commodore 64 and, and Spectrum entered into an almost open market. There wasn't really that competition there, on, on at least on that level. That's our theory anyway at, at the moment, where that's what we, we think. That's an interesting angle as well, because I remember, you know, back then it, I, I got, you know, Commodore Plus 4 that my mum probably got for about £25 in like 1988. Ah. Um, and it kind of felt like, you know, now you're used to upgrading your phone every year or two years. But back then it kind of felt like, you know, you buy, your parents would buy a computer for you, but it, that's, they didn't know much about it and they didn't see why you'd need a new one every couple of years. So yeah. a lot of my friends, you know, got like Spectrums and C64s, 87, 88, and they were still running them up until 92, 93, some of them. Absolutely. So it felt like you kept them longer. So I think, I think that's the thing. If you've already got a slightly diluted market and you've got, it's not just necessarily Commodores. If you think of all the things that the Mega Drive came out in, was it 88? There's a lot of things in the market. So you're, you're suddenly then after a smaller piece of the pie. Yeah, because I remember, you know, one sad day opening a magazine, probably I think it must have been April, May 92. Not long after I got my Amiga 500 Plus for Christmas. And then again, it, it kind of shows you, you know, now you used to like, you know, a cost-reduced model of a PlayStation or whatever coming out a year later, and it's fine. Yeah. But I remember reading that Commodore discontinued the Amiga 500. And, you know, it felt like to me, I'd only had my, my machine six months. I was a bit gutted <laughs> about it. And they're bringing out this new thing, the Amiga 600. And, you know, I was, I was a bit like, why are they doing that? And it kind of felt like, you know, that the A500 was still selling really well. Then yeah. Commodore just suddenly killed it. I mean, do you think that, was a mistake and was the Amiga 600 a worthy successor to it? It's very interesting you've brought that up actually because the that is something we're going to be exploring in this this documentary because um David Pleasance for example he said he said that the they requested an Amiga 300 and he said they wanted he said if we could have he was worried about the sales of the the continuing sales of the C64 in the early 90s right it was still selling and he thought, if we can have something that's almost as cheap, that's a cut-down version of the A500, we can tap into that C64 market and finally convert them over and pick up. And I, I can't remember. I'll, obviously, I'll have to ch- check the transcripts and everything. But as far as I remember, it came, he requested it. And Dave Haney in um, at Commodore was working on it. And it was like it was it was he was working out how to get the cost down, so it was either I think it was going to be half the price of the A five hundred. But the point was, is if the A three hundred had come out as it should have done, it would have continued the A five hundred, because obviously you don't then get rid of the A five hundred if you bring out the A three hundred. You bring out a cut price down a cut price version, and then you can then compare it to the A five hundred. And he felt that that would. Instead of someone spending sixty nine pounds on a Commodore sixty four or whatever it was by nineteen sort of ninety one ninety two, um, they would spend one hundred and forty nine pounds on this A three hundred, and then think mm, maybe I'll still get the the A five hundred. And he felt it would mean that that was that gap in the market. And then he mm-hmm. said to us that suddenly it upturned an A six hundred, and he thought, well, that's going to completely destroy the A five hundred market. That's not what I asked for. I wanted something. And Dave Haney, and you're going to have to wait for the film, 
um, does explain what happened at Commodore from his point of view about why the A300 project was stopped. And suddenly this new project was escalated to create the A600. And that did lead to the A500. And from what we understand is there was a lot of chaotic thinking. By the early 1990s, Commodore were in financial trouble. And when companies get into financial trouble, they can knee-jerk and make silly decisions. Um, and that's kind of what was happening to Commodore in the early 90s. They they were kind of being pushed and pulled around by, by um, what they were believing they were being told by distributors. And it was kind of rather than having sitting down and having clear thinking and saying, right, this is going to be the next five years. This is what we should do. They were sort of getting pulled around a little bit. And it was no shock when they went down in 94. You know, they were, they were, they were probably. Um, Frank Leonardi that talks about what was going on within Commodore, isn't it? A few of them. Yeah. David, Frank. Yeah. Um, and they. It's fascinating really. Yeah. Dave and also Jeff Porter is going to be giving us, he was there right until the end. So we'll get his views um, yeah. on exactly what happened and also it will get his views on the a300 as well because obviously we've got bob welland who worked on the um um the a who was one of the the key people involved in the a500 project and we've already interviewed him and we've gone into huge detail on the fat agnes and other uh very very clever um chip alterations to sort of get those get those uh, boards and uh, chips condensed down to make them cheaper to manufacture to make the A5, A500 possible in the first place. But, uh, I love the names of them as well, Fat, Fat Agnes. Agnes. Yes, <laughs> I know. It's quite common with chip um, chip ma- uh, manufacturers. They tend uh, designers. They'll they'll name it something mm. on the blackboard until they're until they're ready to give it a proper name. Um, we've just interviewed Federico Fagin, the, the the creator of the world's first microprocessor, and obviously oh, went on oh, well. to found, to create the Z80, which is obviously the brain of the uh, of the ZX Spectrum, and, and he said exactly the same thing. You know, they name them, and then they sort of it's all about cost per unit cost. How many how many transistors can we fit on this chip? How many things can we do, and what can we sell it for? Can we get it under twenty five pounds, or can we get it under ten pounds? You know, and whereas in the mid seventies, when the first microprocessors came out, they were hundreds and hundreds of pounds each. So you could only put them in very, very expensive systems. So by the time you got, we sort of fall, go forward over 10 years later into the into Amiga territory, and you've got this, again, fantastic chip design um, to create, obviously, this ama- amazing Amiga chipset that made those games possible. Um, but they all got those funny names, which is uh, Lorraine, Agnes, all sorts of other, yeah. other names which we'll explore. <laughs> Well, as if, you know, Commodore weren't doing enough to kind of you know, kill the market off by stopping the Amiga 500 suddenly. I mean, you had the Atari ST kind of on the other side of the fence. I mean, you kind of explore, because, I mean, I remember that was a big rivalry, you know, Atari ST versus Amiga 500. Is there any kind of that you're going to be going into? I think we we kind of covered the, the Atari ST. I, I think we were, we, we were fair to the Atari ST. I mean, the Atari ST project was was turned around in less than a year by some ex-Commodore staff that Jack Trammell brought in um, to Atari. And it was it was because they needed to get a 68,000 rival out there quickly. And it did beat the Amiga to launch. Um, but it was certainly more of a Commodore type machine, wasn't it? If you look if you look at it, it smacks of a of a Commodore product. It's got that it's in a single case. It's got yeah. a um There you go, there's another episode we could do that focuses on the Atari ST. I mean, I actually like, I really <coughs> yeah. like the Atari ST. I mean, I, my, yeah. my brother used it for, got him in, he got his music career going. He was using the Atari ST for years. Yeah. Fact, well, they were in every music studio, weren't yes, they? they, for, were. You know, they in were. the 90s. They yeah. were. And I think the, um, I think the first hard drive I ever saw 
which was like a washing machine, was uh, <laughs> Stephen had for his Atari ST1040. So because he got it once, I gave it, I gave it to him when I got the Amiga, and he made massive use of it. But from a musical perspective, I mean, occasionally I'd hear him playing games on it. But yeah. now the Atari ST is an interesting is is an interesting idea. It's an interesting story, but only in terms of being able to get something out designed so quickly and effectively. Really, it doesn't have the hardware of the Amiga at all. And the Atari ST didn't have the longevity. It, it, it carried on as a music, as a music system. Um, but certainly as a game system, I don't think it, it had, it carried on as long as the Amiga in terms of innovative titles that came out for it. And of course that was part of the problem at the start was that developers were creating games, not all, but were, some developers were creating games for the Atari ST and simply porting them over to the Amiga because it was so, obviously almost impossible to do it the other way around. Um, though it did yeah. happen, um, you could actually port some over from the Amiga. But, of course, if, you've got, if you're have got, if you utilising the chipsets, like Speedball 2, um, famously, when Dan Malone designed the graphics, he did an Amiga version and an Atari ST version. Both versions are separate. If you look at if you look at Speedball 2, the floor and other aspects of the graphics are quite different between the two versions. It wasn't a straight port, whereas... You, that did happen where a lot of ST games were just cloned onto the Amiga. I think, you know, mentioning the that kind of Amiga-Atari connection and Jack is quite interesting too, because obviously the original Amiga team went on to work with Atari on, on the Lynx project, didn't they? So there is definitely that connection. That's there. right, RJ and uh, RJ Michael and Dave, Dave Needle. Um, yeah. actually, I love the Lynx, actually. It was. Uh, I, I thought it was. I thought it was fantastic um, piece of piece of gear actually, um, and uh, but yes, they did. And I think it's just because they were great designers. I mean, I mean, it, it does. At the end of the day, hardware manufacturers, whether they be Atari or Commodore, you still need people to design good product. You still need great chip designers, industrial designers, so it visually looks appealing. You still need to get something out there. Um, and in fact, we're we're actually interviewing Martin Brennan soon. Um, who obviously, from his Sinclair days of working on the 128 um, and Spectrum products, obviously went on to do the Jaguar, um, uh, among among other things. So I'm actually we're actually going to be covering all of the Jaguar um, and everything else because that again is, represents an interesting era. Atari was struggling um, in that in that early 90s period as well. They were looking for um, obviously another, uh, and they were losing money, and they you know they were finding it hard to sort of progress because they're. You know, once the PlayStation came out in the in the uh, mid '90s, it sort of knocked the competition out. I mean, you know, in 2022, amazingly, um, the other day I was in WH Smith and I walked in, I saw, you know, a new Amiga magazine on the shelf, you know, Amiga Addict. Yeah. And then I walked into Game and there was, a, you know, the mini Amiga 500 was on sale in there as well. Yeah. The fact that I can go into town and pick up a new Amiga in a magazine, yeah. you know, 30 years after I got my original machine. It's pretty insane. I mean, what do you think of the the kind of revival of the Amiga over the last decade and the scene today? I don't. Do you know something? I think it would be disingenuous to say it really didn't go away. I don't. I think mm. Amiga fans out there would would always say, "Well, the demo scene was still active." You know, we're all still active. But I know, I know what you mean. It became more. It's become more sort of um, commercial again in terms of it, it. You wouldn't have a magazine on the shelves if it, if there wasn't the audience there to buy it. It just wouldn't exist. And the Mini as well represents, obviously, that there's still a very, very hungry community that want to see that. I mean, the Mini, um, I've got a C64 Mini, and I really liked it. Uh, I, you know, I, I know some purists say, oh, you should be loading stuff up on the on original systems. I mean, we don't do game capturing um, in terms of for our films on it, but it's it's still fun to be able to just play something quite quickly. And I think that shows that there's a fan base there 
I mean, um, our Kickstarter, we've got, what is it? Um, we're down to the final hours now, and we've we've gone through the first load. Of, we've gone through most of the stretch goals. That tells us there's still a fan base there. There's There's been other people out there that have made Amiga, Amiga video content, and they've got their projects funded. And I think there's, there's I'm sure there'll be people after us that will want to, to visit the Amiga again. We've been asked to come back to the Amiga, perhaps because there's a bit of unfinished business there in terms of subjects that we that we want to explore. And I think that that's the reason. That's why we're doing this, because we've been asked to, because there's still such a keen uh, and alive Amiga community out there. It is bizarre, because, I mean, and we'll talk about events in a moment, but I've been, you know, to Amiga events over the last couple of years, and it kind of feels like they're getting more and more busy, you know, in the last half a decade or so. And also, I mean, you know, I do Amiga content on YouTube, and my videos have been doing you know, a lot more views than they did like maybe a decade ago on Amiga content. Do you think like, you know, stuff like having these magazines in the shops and the, the A500 Mini, do you think it's getting returning people through the door and getting interest in it again, you know, from people that maybe had forgotten about it? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that I think that's it. Perhaps there is, it kind of, again, I'm using the Rubber Keyed Wonder as an example because we had a lot of people that hadn't even gone to Kickstarter before and they, and they simply backed us because they saw the picture of the Spectrum and thought, oh, it was it was in touch with their youth. Yeah, it's that so, nostalgia. Yeah. I think. Um, yeah. I think people just are really enjoying that at the moment. You know, the world's been through quite a, uh, a funny old time, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I think really people are turning to things and thinking. You know, I, w- I want to kind of go back to when I was in my uh, in the eighties, and I mean, I that's why I think I've been really enjoying the Spectrum film because you know the Spectrum was part of my youth. And um, and I just think it's that thing of the nostalgia element. It just makes you feel kind of warm and fuzzy inside. Yeah, that noise. But, um, I still think now when like, I put a disc in the A five hundred the other day, and that little sl- that little f- that noise it makes just as it catches. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's oh, you know, oh yeah. It's like there's so many things that you just think, oh yes, right. I mean, no, I'm not taking anything away from the mini, but again, when you play, when you actually fire up the original hardware, there's those little things that you take for granted when you've been away for a while and you come back. You think, oh yeah, it's all those silly little things that you, that make you feel at, back at that age again. And people, I mean, people have got very with with media, for example, in terms of us making these films. You know, the fact that we've been asked to do to do this, and we're only too happy to do it. it you know, it gives us a living to con- continue making things that people enjoy. But I think that it, if something becomes popular. It, it, and whether it's whether it's old fans introducing new fans to it, you know, there's this whole new pixel art thing. People are now like Stu Cambridge said to me recently. People are saying, "I'll oh, do that pixel art type thing you do." He goes, "But that's all I could do at the time. It wasn't a design choice. <laughs> it was because that was effectively how we were able to construct the graphics at the time. Whereas now it's become a a design choice because we don't have to yeah. design games with those uh, with with that particular look anymore. Um, but if you decide to go down that road, but for people that grew up with the Amiga and and it hits that nostalgia that gland in you in you when you see those that artwork or that sound or the way the music or the way the dick the the disc would access uh, at certain points, I think there's a whole thing to the memory, and I think that's why people like um, reading those magazines. They're like holding the magazines in because that was another part of being an Amiga fan, wasn't it? Amiga format, all the magazines that we used to have and consume. We'd rely on them just like we did earlier on with the 8-bit systems. But you still, games by that point were sort of upwards of 15 to 20 pounds. You know, you, if you were going to buy one, you really needed to be sure. Um, and you relied on those magazines even more. And that, again, was all, was all part of it. Because things changed so quickly after that. As I said, by the mid-90s with PC really taking off and the PlayStation, it was that 
the Amiga holds that little bit of in-between space um, in terms of the in terms of the, the commercial games market. Um, and we had so many amazing titles in, that could take the original 8-bit games into directions that we just couldn't have imagined. And when we take things like Secret of Monkey Island and, so, you know, we were talking about Darkseed. I fired Darkseed up the other day. That It's a Geiger design. Well, Geiger was involved in the in the design of it. And I remember at the time it being really atmospheric and, and pulling you in Moonstone. I mean, we could just sit here all day talking about these games that we just we absolutely loved. And they looked, oh, what was it? We were playing Hunter. Because I, I saw it in Retro Gamer recently, so I decided to fire Hunter up again. Hunter absolutely blew me away at the time. Did you? Do you remember Hunter? Yeah, those kind of three D yeah. graphics. I just, yeah. but it was that I that Sam, but that whole idea of I can get in a helicopter or I can get into any car yeah. and drive it. I'd never experienced that that level of freedom before, and I didn't. You know, while I appreciate now, it does look quite aged in terms of, in terms of graphics. You didn't care at all at the time. That was cutting edge for the time. Totally. Totally, that yeah. whole thing, and you could even sort of, you know, you could sort of lean Grand Theft Auto in its direct, or Grand Theft Auto Three in its direction. That whole freedom of being able to get in any vehicle and, and move around, and and there being combat aspects in there as well, fantastic. And I think we talked about, um, we were talking about Paul Wokes with Damocles and some of the in-depth um, adventure games, RPGs, and other things that that came up. The Amiga is a critical point in the games industry's history. We had uh, Jim Jagger. Um, who might even be listening to this now. Hello, Jim. He wrote to us recently, Jim Jagger is head of animation at Rockstar. And um, I'm assuming busy on GTA 6 at the moment. He said to, he wrote to us to say, I owe my entire career to the Amiga. Oh, and wow. and funny enough, actually, when we were shooting interviews, um, when we were shooting interviews for the PlayStation um, film, the PlayStation Revolution, we were quite surprised that some Japanese developers, that the Amiga barely did anything in Japan, but some Japanese games developers bought Amiga 2000s or 4000s to, to design games on for PlayStation and other things. And one of them was Fumita Ueda, you know, Ico, Shadow of the Colossus, absolutely wow, huge okay. Amiga fan. And he's going to be in this project because when we interviewed him, we talked about the Amiga for about 20 minutes of, of basically how much he loved the Amiga, how much he loved the, the European game scene because of the Amiga. And he said, and no one in he said the Amiga scene in Japan was so small. But he gave us a really good insight into it, so we're going to put it into this production. I find it fascinating when you hear stories about that. You know, people are like really into certain machines that you didn't know they they were big fans yeah. of. For example, I was reading that Dick Van Dyke apparently was a massive Amiga fan. Was he? Oh, really? <laughs> apparently, yeah, apparently so. Yeah, he <laughs> was like in in the eighties. He used to sing, you know, advocate the Amiga to everyone, walk around in Amiga T-shirts and stuff. Apparently, I can give wow. you a, I can give you a little tip that we learned recently. And it's sorry, moving from the Amiga just briefly back to the Spectrum, um, we found out that Francis Ford Coppola is a collector of Sinclair products. Including obviously, wow. including the, the computers, but he, he collected the you know the um, the watches and calculators and um, and when they when apparently Sir Clive was on a plane um, with um, with somebody else in Sinclair, Francis Ford Coppola basically sort of came over and said, "I'm a huge fan. I've got all your I've got all your you know rather than saying I've got all your films as, as somebody might say, <laughs> Coppola, I've got all your gadgets. I've got all your gadgets." <laughs> <Amazing>. <laughs> apparently, Sir Clive was like, "Oh, thank you very much," you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stiff up a limb. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, I mean, it's incredible that you, you know, continuing to make these love letters to these, you know, machines that we grew up adoring and, you know, talking to the people that were involved in them as well. I mean, like we mentioned, the Kickstarter ends this weekend. I mean, uh, obviously, I'll put all the links in the in the notes as well, but people need to jump on there. How do they get hold of the film then on Kickstarter? Is that the best Yeah, way? just go to Kickstarter and um, there's, there's various levels. You can go in and just obviously snag a digital copy or you can go and get a... Uh, Blu-ray, but we've also got something a little bit different this time um, because obviously we had this idea about releasing stuff so that people get a little bit of an Amiga fix once a month leading up to the release. So we thought we've got all these game making ofs that no one's ever seen before. So we're going to release some of these each month. Um, so people get not just obviously back in a project and getting a, pro- a product at the end of it, but they're also going to get a, a monthly Amiga fix along the way. So there's a there's a pledge tier in there which includes the Blu-ray and and that episodic content that will be delivered along. That's the backer pack. That's called it? the backer pack, and that's yeah. actually proved to be quite successful. But we're not we're not opening up after the Kickstarter. We've we creates quite a lot of admin for us. Um, when we leave things on pre-order and, and stuff like that, because doing the updates is difficult, you've got to create a separate mailing list and and everything. And we sort of thought, look, we're gonna we're gonna fundraise it for four weeks. Anybody that any Amiga fans that want this project to get part of this project, get in basically because you won't you'll miss out. And um, hope you know that's really we just want to get on and make it and not have to sort of um, think about afterwards other than just fulfilling the final final perk. So yeah, you've got. Looking at the clock now, you're down to the final hours. So if you want to be part of the project, do please join us and just go to Kickstarter and look up The Gaming Chronicles, <laughs> Episode 1, The Amiga 500. Yeah, search at Kickstarter, or I'll put the link in the Thank show notes as much. well. Thank you very much. click it straight through. Get that back this weekend if you're an Amiga fan. And Nick, it's always incredible to catch up with you um, and always enjoy our nostalgic chats. Oh, so keep up the good Thank work. Thank you so much. It's been lovely. Thank it's been you. been brilliant.